Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. If you quit early for rational reasons, you may have just given up on the greatest success of your life. And I don't want people quitting. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Today on the podcast, we have the co-founder of Square, which is the massive financial services company that was able to succeed when Amazon came after them. We're going to be talking today about innovation and how you can think about setting your team up or setting your organization up so that it can be successful even when there are other larger organizations or larger players in your space. I want to go ahead and prepare you beforehand. This interview is going to be a little bit longer than usual, but you're going to be able to take some great insights from this episode that will help you in your leadership role. I'm going to share with you a little bit more about our guest in just a second, but first I want to let you in on an opportunity that can help you in your leadership growth. Do you want to accelerate your leadership success? There's a way you can do that for free, and it's called the MindScan. This assessment is an inventory based on the Nobel-nominated Hartman Value Profile, and it measures your capacity to make value judgments concerning you and the world around you. Instead of simply understanding how you behave, it objectively measures why you behave the way you do. Align your thinking strengths with your leadership goals by applying to take the MindScan today. All you need to do is apply by emailing community at lifeasleadership.com. You'll get a unique link and the opportunity to review your results. Both the assessment and review call are totally free. If you want to understand the how and why of your decision making, in order to more quickly get the results you want, the MindScan can be your next step to success. Once again, community at lifeasleadership.com. Now, on to today's interview. Our guest today is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, artist, and perhaps most notably, the co-founder of the financial services juggernaut Square. He served as the chairman of its board until 2010 and still serves on the board of directors. In 2011, his iconic card reader design was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. In 2016, he also founded Invisibly, an ambitious project to rewire the economics of online content. He's the deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve and is the author of the recently released book entitled The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Here is Jim McKelvey. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Josh. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. So you ready for these? Fire away. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Wait. The word wait. I learned that from an Italian master named Lino Tagliapietro, who was a glassblowing he's, – he's the best glassblower in the world, and basically everyone agrees. As a matter of fact, today – is the glass-blowing international conference. It was supposed to be held in Sweden this year, and we were all going to go. So normally I would be in Sweden you know, with a bunch of you know, grubby artists uh, 
like me uh, right now, but instead I'm in, you know, locked down in St. Louis, Missouri. But uh, Lino is the maestro in glass, and I took a class from him, and I was having this trouble making a shape, and he uh, he has this funny class because you're only allowed to ask him one question. And so the students obsess about their question because like you get you get a two week class and you're allowed to ask one question in two weeks. Right. Mm. So I asked him how to do something that was really super basic, like put a foot on a bowl, which is if you know anything about glass blowing, it is super simple. And he said to me, he said, make a bowl. And I did. And he said, make a foot. And I made a foot. And he says, put the foot on the bowl, which I thought he was going to teach me how to do. But it turns out the lesson was timing, because as I was about to put the foot on the bowl, he said, wait. And then he said, now. And then it went on perfectly. And the, the amazing thing was that I had been doing the technique right for like 15 years, but I'd had the timing wrong. And so this one little word in Italian uh, has changed my life because as soon as I saw my timing mistake, I realized that it had applications far beyond the glass studio. And so these days, when I look at something that is not working, I ask myself, in addition to, could it work? Like, is, is the technology right? It's also, is the timing right? Because timing can kill you. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is... Curious, humble, and a leader is accidental. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? I would go with, why not? Hmm. You know, if not me, then who? What book would you recommend to leaders? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is... Not a book on leadership. I, I generally hate business books, and we're going to talk about this thing that I wrote that's a business book. Um, I, I find them torturous. I don't typically like them, but I like things that uh, that improve your communication or sense of humor. And uh, I've been re- rereading Douglas Adams uh, in the middle of the pandemic just to recharge my sense of humor, just to, just to sort of – it's got this absurd undertone, and it's, it's good to keep that sense of humor alive. So let's, let's keep laughing. So, uh, yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? It would be to do something that makes them slightly uncomfortable. Just one little thing. You know, eat some food you don't like or talk to somebody or hang out with somebody who has, you know, opinions that annoy you or uh, go to that thing with your spouse that you're not, you, you don't enjoy. I mean, just move a little bit out of your area of comfort. And and the reason for that is not to expand your comfort zone, which it actually does, but it's to learn what it's like to be uncomfortable because discomfort tends to be part of leadership. You will be in situations where you're uncomfortable and you have to continue functioning. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Uh, it depends where you are in your journey. You begin by asking why. You begin by learning how things work. You begin by copying. And we all learn that in school. We learn why something works, how something works. We learn, hopefully, the principles behind something. And that's a baseline. Without that knowledge, you can't then do the more important thing, which is then ask why not. So I would say anyone who has you know, a sort of reasonable command of life should be asking why not as opposed to why. Uh, but in the beginning, we ask why. So, Jim, we are here today to talk about your new book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. And I had some ideas of how to start off this interview, but talking before the interview, you were telling me that originally this book was supposed to be a graphic novel. And I'd love for you to explain to us, I don't yet know the answer, but explain to us 
what your thinking was and also maybe why it didn't end up being that graphic novel. Yeah. So um, first of all, I, I genuinely find business books to be difficult to read. You know, for every one great one you get, there are probably 20 that are just bad, you know, and they're not bad because uh, of any reason. It's just that, you know, a lot of the stuff's been said and a lot of it's boring and a lot of it's trite and, ugh, you know, and so I did not want to write a business book, but I stumbled again, I, I stumbled upon this very, very powerful phenomenon that allowed Square to survive a direct attack by Amazon which is unheard of. Like no startup survives an attack by Amazon. Like it's just never been done. And yet Square, when we were, you know, a four-year-old company got attacked by Amazon and, and survived without really changing anything we were doing, which was amazing. So I saw this, I saw this thing that protected Square and I was like, oh, well, this, this thing unique to Square. And it turns out it wasn't. It was this thing that I call an innovation stack. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it, it had this powerful effect and it created these super world-dominating companies, like the biggest bank in the world had an innovation stack. Ikea had an innovation stack. Southwest Airlines, which was the dominant airline, you know, uh, for the last, well, basically 40 years in the United States, innovation stack. And, and I was talking to Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest. And I had all this research, but I didn't believe that I should write a book if I didn't have a live person to verify my research, because most of my research was from history and all of the protagonists were dead. So I asked Herb and I sat down, I, I basically laid out everything I had. And I said, Herb, does what I think is happening to me and Square, did it happen to you in Southwest? He said, oh yeah. He's like, you got to write this. He's like, this is important stuff. You need to get out there and do it. And I was so excited because Herb was this sort of hero of mine. Like he's this legend. And, um, Oh my God, I still, I still talk of him as if he's alive. He, the poor man died a couple of years ago. But mm. uh, imagine one of the people who you most idolize sitting in his office and saying, yes, you got to go do this. I was so jazzed to leave Herb's office. I was like, I'm not going to write just another stupid business book because like Herb was a hero to me. So I thought, oh, this will be great. So I, I spent a year like doing a graphic novel on the book, just, you know. And and all the stories sort of lend themselves to you know this because there's uh, there's murders there's Nazis there's wars there's an earthquake and a fire and gold and horses and you know gunshots I mean like all this stuff is in there it's in the book you know and I was like oh well pen and ink right and I I called Herb and I was like you're gonna love this I was like we're doing it as a graphic novel and and he hated the idea <laughs> he was like because he, he said he said look you know you're this is a serious subject yeah. And he, he, I mean, he used his age as an excuse. He says, look, I'm in my 80s. And to me, this is a comic book. And I think you're not doing the subject justice. So I, uh, I rewrote half the book. <laughs> I basically rewrote wrote Herb's half of the book to be like a normal book. And then I submitted it to my publisher as a sort of half book, half graphic novel. And my publisher was like, nobody's going to read this because everybody uses e-readers and audio and it's just not going to work. So then I rewrote the whole thing again as a as a regular book. So I've got to ask, is there ever a possibility that this will be turned into a graphic novel in the future? Do you have any plans to continue pushing that, if at all possible, if there's a market for it? So part of it is. Part of it already is. Um, so if you go to jimbakelvey.com, I will give you like chapter nine, which is a story about a banker, which sounds really boring, but it's like super cool. It's like it's a graphic novel by itself. So I've published that and you can get it for free at, at my website because I wanted people to see the 
you know, I wanted people to see the story. But uh, look, out of respect for Herb, it will ne- the parts about Herb Kelleher and the parts that he and I discussed will never be anything but what the man wanted. Mm-hmm. And I was here, I, I was hoping to show it to Herb and get him to change his mind. But he died before I could do that. So I will, I will never dishonor the man. Yeah, I can appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. So one of the things that I would like to know and that I would have started off the interview with otherwise is really giving us an idea of what the innovation stack is, what you mean by that, and then also what you're hoping that readers get from this. What's the result that you would like to see in people's lives as people continue to read the innovation stack and take the lessons from there and use them in their own lives? So the, the innovation stack is just this thing that we stumbled upon at Square. And what you may not know about Square was that we were attacked by Amazon. And when Amazon attacks you, they do three things. They undercut your price by 30%, copy your product, and then expect you to die. And this always works. And Square survived. They undercut our price, they copied our product, and we didn't die. And so that set me on a basically a three-year research quest to find out what the hell happened. Because I couldn't believe that we were so special that the laws of business didn't apply to us for some reason. Because the laws of business basically say, if Amazon attacks you this way, you always die. But we didn't. And so it turns out that there were other companies like us throughout history, and we'd all discovered these things called innovation stacks. An innovation stack is basically the process of inventing new. And the process of inventing new is something that most people don't really understand because we do so little of it in our lives. And what I realized when I was researching the book was that most of the things that I did in my life and basically everybody else is just copies of other stuff that works. So right now I'm sitting in a chair. I'm talking to you. I'm sitting in a chair. And guess what? This is, there's nothing original about the chair I'm sitting in. There's nothing original about the building I'm sitting in. I mean, there's nothing original about me. I'm basically a copy of my parents. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm minusculely different genetically from my parents and very, 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 very similar to every other human on the planet. So we copy because it works, but sometimes copying doesn't work. And in those cases, we have to invent. And invention is this weird thing that nobody talks about. And I know there's the words thrown around all the time, but when I actually looked at what people who were doing real inventing were actually doing, it was so different than what I'd been taught. I was like, oh my God, I got I to gotta write about this. So I, I wrote about it. But to answer your second question, which is like, look, what should the reader get? I did not need to write another book. So it was a complete pain in the neck to write this thing. It took three years. And, and I'm not a very fast writer. I'm not, a, I'm not an easy writer. I, I have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite before it's you know, readable and fun. But right now, it's a perfect example of a situation that needs invention, innovation. Like the whole world has been shut down. And I'm on the Fed. And like the economists at the Fed have been talking about this. There's never been a case of this in human history. Like we have never voluntarily shut down the economy. It's never happened. So what do we do? Well, the answer is we don't know. Okay. So what do you do in a situation where you don't know? And the answer is you have to innovate. You have to invent. And so people are being thrown into this world where the normal rules no longer apply, which means you could have been really, really good at your routine, which basically involved doing the same things or things that other people had already figured out how to do. And now you're thrown in a world where People don't know what to do. And there are no experts because we haven't been here before. So we need a lot of people. And I, I wanted our talent to come off the sidelines because, I mean, Josh, when, when I wrote this book, I had one person in mind. And I know who she is and I will never use her name. But she is so talented. And she is 
brilliant, hardworking, like any positive adjective you could throw out, except for one thing. And that is when she confronts a problem that is new to the world, not new to her, but new to the world, she always disqualifies herself. She says, I can't do this hmm. because I can't see an example of anyone else doing it. She, she, she feels unqualified to solve a new problem. And, and what I have been trying to tell her, the reason I wrote the book is, is I, I know what it's like to feel that way, to feel completely unqualified to do something and yet to do it anyway. And, my friend is paralyzed because she says, well, I'm not qualified to do this. But the fact is nobody is qualified to do something that has never been done before. That does not mean it's impossible. It just means you're not qualified. So uh, the great example is the Wright brothers, okay? So Wilbur and Orville flipped a coin to see who was going to be the first pilot, you know? And he wasn't qualified. He got in a plane. He flew a plane. No human had ever flown a plane before. So it would be impossible to be a qualified pilot but it's still possible to do. So I want the world to understand that so many of us have this power and that invention and innovation is not this sort of rare, weird thing that only heroes can do. Uh, we can all do it. It's, it's pretty simple. And I explain how all that works. And I'd like to get into Square's story a little bit because I think it serves as a great example. But before that, one of the things you talk about towards the end of your book is the unexpected connection between copycats and disruptors. And sometimes the people we think are the actual disruptors really aren't. Could you speak to that for a second? Okay, so let's talk about copying for a second. I think copying is great. Like I always try to copy what works, but that does not work if the problem has not been solved before. So what I do in the book is I talk about these things called perfect problems. So what's a perfect problem? A perfect problem is a solvable problem that has not been solved yet. Okay. In other words, we have the ability to solve it. You know, it's not like teleportation. Like teleportation, if it's possible, we ain't got the tools to do that right now. I mean, I'd love to be able to teleport, can't do it. All right. So that's an unsolved problem that's possibly unsolvable. But there are unsolved problems that are solvable. And those perfect problems require innovation in the sense that they require us to build a series of new things to solve this unsolved problem. And that sounds simple, but if you, if you want to know how rare innovation is, you have to look at how prevalent copying is. Like almost everything we do in our lives is copies of other stuff that works. You know, like I'm going to go through an entire day today. There will be nothing original in my day today. Like just, I've done interviews for podcasts before. I've worn this headset before. I sat in this chair before. I've talked to people like you before. I mean, you and I haven't, met, I haven't talked to you before, but hey, guess what? You know, you're not that different, you know? I'm not that different from other art, authors you've interviewed. Like this, this day is going to be a complete copy for me. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not going to move the world that far forward if, it's, if there's a new problem that we're trying to solve and we can only copy. So copy solutions, absolutely. But- if we had to figure out this thing to solve a problem that was new, we couldn't copy. And so, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, we throw around this word disruption, like everyone's supposed to be a disruptor. The interesting thing that I discovered through my research was that the companies that actually innovate don't disrupt. They tend to create new markets to themselves. So Square, okay, we're, we've been called disruptive company. Like, who did we disrupt? PayPal? No, they're 10 times the size they were when we started. I mean, we were kind of a, 
we were kind of, you know, in PayPal's face for a while, but they're huge and we're huge. And okay, we did disrupt them. Uh, did we disrupt uh, the credit card monopolies? Nope, they're still doing better. Uh, did we disrupt other credit card processors like Heartland? And I mean, Heartland was basically on life support when we started Square. Uh, and now they're doing great. Like we didn't disrupt anything. What we did was we took 2 million plus small merchants who couldn't process credit cards and we gave them the ability to process credit cards and now a bunch of other tools you know it's been 10 years since since the original product at square but there's no disruption there so walk us through square and the innovation stack then as we're thinking about the innovation stack what can the experience of square teach us and what can we learn from square that we can implement in our own lives so first of all understand that um Invention doesn't have a checklist. So it was really funny when I was trying to publish the book, one of the one of the big publishers refused to even read it because it didn't have any checklists in it. Like a business book has to have checklists. And, you know, <laughs> I sat down with these guys. I was like, uh, okay, so my book discusses the process for solving things that have never been solved before. How the hell are you going to write a checklist for that? Like we get five points, seven points. Oh, and the editor was funny. She was like, "Yes, five to seven. That that would be a great number." I was like, hmm. "I was like, you're you're out of your mind. Like, I can't prescribe how many steps it's going to take to solve an unsolved problem. Maybe it's a one step. Maybe it's two. But more likely, it's twenty or thirty. You know, like what did you have to do differently uh, for the first time to make an airplane? Well, it wasn't just come up with an airfoil." I mean, you had to figure out a way to support the wings. You had to figure out a fabric that wouldn't wrinkle. You had to figure out a lightweight engine. You had to figure out how to turn propellers. You had to figure out how to steer. You know, I mean, like there's all these issues with human flight. It was not just one thing. Same thing with Square. So Square starts. We want to do this simple thing. We thought it was a simple thing. Give credit card processing to small merchants, sometimes to individuals. You know, people who need to get paid should be able to get money off a plastic card. Okay. That turned out to be really difficult because the entire banking system was basically set up without those people in mind. And if you didn't process $100,000, you were excluded. So, I mean, I know a lot of small merchants that do a couple thousand dollars uh, a year and, and they should be welcome. So it turns out that when we went to connect to the banking system, the banking system had no connections for people our size. So we had to invent them. And then by inventing those connections, we broke laws and rules that then we had to either comply with or get changed. And in some cases, there were explicit rules that were preventing what Square was trying to do. So when we started Square in the first two weeks, I found 17 rules, laws, and regulations that we were violating with every single transaction. And, and, and it could have been more than 17. I, I have to say, I stopped counting when it hit 17. Like it was like, when it was 17, I would just throw up my hands like, oh man, this is going to be fun. Because we are so outside outside the walls of this one. Yeah. It was crazy. So what was it that allowed Square to succeed? Because you talk about it not being a disruptor. Is that because it really set its own place, created a new place in the market? That's the differentiation you're drawing? Yeah. So what Square did was not disrupt. Like so so most people think of disruption because they think of markets that are already full of competitors. Yeah. Okay. So if I want to go out and open a new coffee shop in St. Louis, which already has lots of coffee shops, I'm probably going to have to take the coffee drinking customers away from some other coffee shop. Because like, like if you want a cup of coffee in St. Louis, Missouri right now, there are plenty of places to get it. And if I want to open yet another one 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to have to sort of elbow my way into this crowded elevator of other coffee shop companies. I will probably not create new coffee drinkers. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll figure out some way to do it. But more likely, I'll just have to steal from them. In that case, a hyper-successful startup can be disruptive. In other words, if I steal, if I set up a coffee shop that's so great that nobody drinks coffee anywhere else, well, then I will have disrupted the other coffee companies. But uh, I'm going to really get myself in trouble with this uh, analogy. Let's say I don't want to set up uh, a caffeine delivery store like coffee. Let's say I want to set up another drug store. Let's say I want to open a meth stop. Okay. Like, you know, I want, I want you know, coffee, you know, coffee ain't doing it for you. Like uh, Jim's drive through meth shack. Hmm. Right. And we figure out a way to make that legal and stuff. You know, so I come up with a completely different, you know, uh, drug that we can deliver to keep you awake. It's very likely to not have any effect on the coffee consumption. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, um, and actually, I guess I, I, my meth example is obviously crazy, but the fact is, I mean, today the dispensaries, the marijuana dispensaries over in Illinois, are considered an essential business. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anybody who's you know buying pot from a dispensary who's stopped drinking coffee. You know, it's just a, it's it's so you can open up a new business and not disrupt an old one. So that being said, at the same time, Amazon was trying to, I guess, gain its own share in the new market that Square was creating. And so when you create something that is totally unique, that doesn't necessarily mean that people won't try to also become that quote unquote disruptor or copycat. How do you withstand that? So that's where the power of the innovation stack comes in. And now we have to get into a little math, and I apologize for doing math on your podcast, but let's consider what it means to successfully copy somebody else's thing. And let's, we have to give a, a, an odds of success. So let's say it's 80%, okay? 80 is pretty, pretty high odds of success, okay? If uh, four out of five times you are successful at replicating somebody else's work, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good track record. So let's say Amazon is 80% successful at copying other companies' innovations. Okay. Now let's take a look at Square's innovation stack, which at least as as I counted, is about 14 different things. So what does the math look like if you have to do one thing correctly? Well, that's 80% chance of success. If you have to do two things successfully, that's 80% of 80% or basically 64%. So it's 0.8 to the second, you know, you square it. Well, raise 0.8 to the power of 14, and all of a sudden the chance of success is under 4%. So even mighty Amazon was not able to copy all the 14 things that Square was doing differently, partially because they didn't know some of them, but partially because some of these were tough. And it wasn't like we were publishing a roadmap uh, for everybody else. We were doing the things that we were doing. Now, the funny thing is, Josh, we didn't know this at the time. Like, we didn't sit there and say, well, we're fine. We have an innovation stack. We know we will be protected from Amazon, like, you know, the Bank of Italy was protected from JP Morgan and all the other banks that attacked them. And, you know, IKEA was protected from all the companies that attacked IKEA. Like, no, we didn't, we didn't know what was happening. But in hindsight, I was like, oh my God, yeah, this this explains it. Because honestly, what other explanation? I, I, I could not find one. I, because if you look at the companies that Amazon are successful copying, they're companies that have you know three or four things that they're doing that are unique. And Amazon, you give them three or four things they got to copy, you are dead meat. Yep. Because they'll get them right. 
you give Amazon 20 things to copy, 30 things, they could probably do it, but it's, it might not be worth their time to spend three, four, five years bleeding out while they were getting all those things evolved. That makes total sense. And one of the things that I'm wondering now is how do people begin thinking about this for their own businesses or maybe even for their own lives? What what does that look like to begin to operationalize so that you can become someone who really has a well-developed innovation stack? So I got a really good compliment from one of the people I really respect who read an early version of the book. And I was over to his living room. And I, 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 stu- I still remember his living room because his living room has a painting that's worth more than my entire house. And I, I don't have a very fancy house, but let me tell you this. Actually, let me, let me be honest. This painting is, is worth more than every piece of property that I own, mm. like put together. Okay. Wow. And it's just sitting there hanging in his living room. And I happen to be an artist. I looked, I was like, oh my God. Okay. So this guy is no slouch. Okay. He's no slouch. I was sitting in his apartment in New York and he's read my book and we're talking about it. And he says to me, guy's in his fifties. He says, I wish I'd known this when I was 20. And I said, me too. Like I, I kept, like I, it wasn't like I just knew this all along and now I've decided to reveal the secret. No, so like I just figured this out a couple of years ago. He was in this position where he had started a company, very, very successful guy. He'd started a company, he had quit because he was six elements into his innovation stack and it got so hard that he just gave up. He was like, we're never going to fix this. He said, if I'd known what the invention process had looked like, I might not have quit. And that was both heartening and heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because, I mean, I would have loved to have this guy's company in the world doing great stuff. But it was heartening because I was like, well, maybe this book, if people read it, will give them the power to keep going. Now, look, I don't want you to think you buy this book, there's going to be some checklist, some magical formula, any of that crap. Like, there isn't. Save your money. Like, go go download the cartoon from my website and forget it, right? But if you're actually doing something new, you are going to feel really weird. You're going to feel alone. You're going to feel scared. You're going to feel all this stuff that people don't talk about. And what I will try to do is show you how other people throughout history have had the same journey and then firsthand how I had the journey and basically say, look, I know you're going to feel uncomfortable, but this is just what it's like to be in this position. And you might not want to quit just because you're uncomfortable because there are two reasons people give up, right? One is they are just absolutely at their end. They are exhausted. They can no longer do anything. They're out of money. They're out of resources. They're out of time. They're out of sleep. They're divorced. They're just, they're gone, spent, done, no more. But that's not how most people quit. Most people quit in a rational way. They're trying. It's not working. They're trying something else. That causes more problems. So now they fix that other problem, but now they got a new problem. They're trying that. They're trying, and they finally kind of rationally give up. They go, oh man, this is just never going to work. But that second solution, that second case that I just described, baby, that's what invention is. Like if you're inventing something significant, something that is actually going to dominate your industry or better yet, create an entire new industry, it's going to be the second case every time. And if you quit early for, and I'm making air quotes right now, rational reasons, you may have just given up on the greatest success of your life. And I don't want people quitting. 
Like it just breaks my heart. Like my friend who I wrote the book for, she will disqualify herself. She comes up against a problem that she could solve for the world. And she goes, oh, I, I, I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that. I'm like, yeah, of course you're not qualified to do it. Nobody's qualified to do it, but you have the potential to do it. You just don't know what the process looks like. So at least I'm going to tell you what the process looks like and then show you a bunch of funny stories of other people that have been through it. I don't know if that's going to help, but you know, maybe it will. I have no doubt that this book will help people get where they want to go if they want to do something new that will set them apart. Jim, before we go today, are there any final thoughts, any things that maybe you'd like to reiterate or something that we didn't quite get to today in the interview that you'd like to share with listeners before we finish? Yeah, it's, it's a chapter that I should have written in the book and I didn't. And it's relevant to what we're going through today. So I literally wrote a book that I expected maybe one in 10 people would want to read because I only figured like there's one in 10 people actually has the ability to sort of summon the guts to do something that's different from the rest of us. It's a rare, it's, it's a rare quality. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm already going to have pretty limited sales because only about one in 10 people is actually going to read and go, oh yeah. All right. And then this SARS-CoV-2 thing, um, I guess we call it COVID-19 now, but I mean, like this virus hits, the world shuts down, the economy shuts down, everything changes. All our lives get completely upended. And now all of a sudden, everybody, whether they want to or not, is being thrown into these crazy times where they have to create new things. They have to invent, they have to create new processes, even if just for themselves. And then I realized that the chapter that I should have written in the book, and this is what I will give your listeners, uh, and I apologize for not having you know the insight to do this when I was actually writing, but most of the people that I talk about in the book, and I'll put myself in this to some extent, but, but definitely the, the sort of world-leading entrepreneurs who became household names in many cases or, or whatever metric you would use for success, man, they've got it, you know, billions of dollars world dominating companies you know respect and admiration for generations of people like th- th- these these sorts of people almost every one of them was accidentally put on the path to entrepreneurship by a physical calamity okay biggest bank in the world was started by a produce vendor in San Francisco California knew nothing about the world of banking starts a bank you know what happens the year after he starts the bank the great San Francisco earthquake. The city falls to the ground, then burns to the ground, and all the other banks are just freaking out. And he has the presence of mind to keep his little bank open. It becomes the biggest bank in the world. Wow. Biggest bank in the world, founded by a guy who sold lettuce, didn't know anything about banking, didn't want to have an earthquake, but boom, there's the earthquake. His, his world is wiped out. Biggest furniture store in the world, Ikea. I mean, I talk about Compra quite a bit. Compra didn't want that. He... he he was kicked out of Sweden. Like if you look at Comrade's story and listen to him tell his own stories, which I did, like the poor guy pissed off the other furniture companies. They kicked him out. They banned him from the trade shares. They basically drove him out of his homeland. And he did not want that. And then, oh, by the way, World War II happened. So like this, this guy was in a tough, tough situation and he didn't want to be there. So we are all in a tough situation. None of us wants to be there, but this horrible situation that we're in right now is going to create some phenomenal entrepreneurship. And I just want people to know that a lot of the world's great entrepreneurs weren't volunteers. They were just people in crummy situations. That's a good reminder. And thank you for sharing that with us. Now, 
before you go, where can people go to learn more about you and your work and the innovation stack? Okay, so the, I, I put up a website, jimmckelvey.com. It's got some basic stuff for me, articles. Uh, it's got a you know, free copy of the comic book if you want that. You can order, yeah, I guess you can order the book there, but you can, you can also order my book on Amazon. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Amazon's making a buck on my book. They're, they're, they're having their laugh. Um, but, you know, I apologize. I don't really use social media. I mean, you will see tweets from me. You will see uh, LinkedIn posts and, and that's not me. That is a PR company that I hired to promote this book because you know, like nobody heard about the book because we launched in the middle of you know SARS-CoV-2. But JimMcKelvey.com is where I will be most available. And I apologize for not using social media, but I, I find it drains my life energy if I get too involved in you know sort of snarky exchanges. And I'm I'm a guy with a dangerous sense of humor, and these days. Like it could just get people in trouble. So mm -hmm. I can't really be myself on social media. So I'd rather sort of not be there than have to be some sort of, uh, you know, sanitized version. So I apologize for not being that accessible, but uh, jimmckelvey.com and there's a mailing list. And I, you know, and I, I, I love talking to people. It's just that, you know, these days uh, I get way too many inquiries. Like people, people rail on me about the Fed. And I was like, look, I'm not one of the Fed directors. I'm, I'm, a, well, I'm, a, I'm a director of the St. Louis Fed, but I'm like, I'm not a, you know, I'm not Washington. Okay, I don't. Sure. I don't set interest rates. I, I, I vote to keep the local interest rates with the ones that they set in Washington. I don't have that. So don't. It's not me. Okay. <laughs> so don't. no, no one's in hate mail your way about the Fed. I, I apologize if you don't like, but I will tell you this: just on behalf of as an insider in the Federal Reserve, these are brilliant, hardworking people. They're doing the right thing. They are apolitical. The Fed is a phenomenal institution. We are lucky to have a central bank like this. Okay. We are lucky, lucky, lucky to have a central bank that's not run by politicians. Okay. So don't politicize the Fed or you will not like the results. The history of the world is clear. You, you want an independent central bank run by good people. That's what we got. They may not be perfect, but they're good, good folks. I get, to, I get to see what these people are doing every day and I applaud them. I mean, wow, this is a tough, tough situation for all the directors and um, they're doing a good job. But, you know, don't email me. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate your candor on all of those <laughs> subjects uh, and also for coming on the show today for sharing about the innovation stack. Jim, it's been a pleasure. What a pleasure, Josh. Thank you so much. And thanks for putting out such a great show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you were able to catch a little bit more of a vision of what innovation is, what it looks like, and how you can use some of the unique things about you and your organization so that you can be more successful as you are seeking to truly make a difference in this world. Now, let's go ahead and get to today's three key takeaways. The first one is this. If you're doing something that's never been done before, it's impossible for you or for anyone else to be qualified to do it. I think this is really insightful, and if you feel like you're unprepared to do something that's never been done before, you are absolutely right. But you are just as qualified as anyone else because no one else is qualified either. So go ahead, take the risk, and try to move forward if you are thinking about, dreaming about, or envisioning something that has not been done before. The second key takeaway is this. There are two reasons that people give up. First of all, 
They're exhausted. They've literally reached the end of their rope and they can't go on. The second and more common reason is that people decide to quit because it seems like the rational thing to do. They decide that it's never going to work, so why keep on trying? And one thing that Jim suggested is that most innovation comes when you go a little bit beyond what seems rational. You push through to that successful point. And the final key takeaway is simply the idea of the innovation stack. The innovation stack is essentially the idea that the more things you can do successfully, the harder it is for someone to come in and do that same thing. So go ahead and think through what things you do well and begin to stack those things on top of each other so that you can differentiate yourself and be sure to make that difference that you want to make once again in this world. Now, I encourage you to come back for our second episode of this week when we have someone who's going to be sharing with us about trust and how to break it down to make sure that we're doing all that we can to encourage trust in the people that surround us. We want to make sure that we're operating in such a way that gains their trust and that deserves their trust. There's going to be plenty of actionable takeaways, so I encourage you to go ahead and subscribe if you're not already so you can get that in your feed as soon as it comes out. I hope you'll join us then, and until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.